much for that kind introduction. Uh, I should say um, that uh, Kant's political philosophy has not been my main subject recently, or it's never, it's never really been my main subject. Uh, my main work uh, in the last several years has been um, a history of modern aesthetics in which Kant figures centrally, but not exclusively, to be sure. Uh, and continuing work, especially on Kant's moral philosophy. This paper I actually wrote last summer, I think, um, for UNESCO uh, World Philosophy Day that was to take place in Iran. Um, eventually, uh, my, my visa never came through and UNESCO withdrew its recognition from that event for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I didn't go. There is, uh, it was written on the assumption that uh, there were a lot of people in Iran that could use hearing about Kant's political philosophy. Um, I don't think here in a highly developed democracy like Britain there's quite the same urgency, so the paper may be uh, perhaps of somewhat more scholarly interest than immediate political interest, but you'll see what you think. Um, so with that preface, I'll begin. Kant is well known for his view that within a morally legitimate territorial state, uh, there can be no constitutional right to forcible resistance against perceived injustices. Only the freedom of citizens to criticize the government and to petition for redress, and a corresponding duty of the government to reform itself in the direction of a more fully just republic. No doubt an ongoing and never-ending process because of the imperfection of human beings, including those in positions of power, uh, even in the best-run state. The ground for this position is, is his view that a just state makes the rights and possessions of its citizens determinate and secure, and that in order to accomplish the latter, the security function in particular, uh, there must be a monopoly of coercive power within an executive branch. A state that does not maintain such a monopoly of coercion within its executive, but that allows another locus of potential coercion either within its legislature or in the people as such, against all branches of government, uh, would not be able to accomplish the legitimate and indeed morally necessary ends of the state and thus would not be a genuine state at all. However, according to Kant, we all st stand under a duty, indeed a moral duty, to be part of a just state. In relations between territorial states, Kant holds that there is no room for the coercive enforcement of rights by any analog of an in international executive or by means of an international executive that would be in the analog of an intranational executive. Uh, he holds this both for the perhaps only apparently a priori reason that the existence of such a coercive force would undermine the monopoly on coercion by the executives within the several states and for the clearly empirical reason that a worldwide government could not remain a republic, but would inevitably generate into a worldwide despotism. So, opposite grounds, same outcome. That is, uh, because of the impossibility rather than, than the necessity of coercion at the international level, the only legitimate way for different states to address disputes over their rights is through means similar to the only permissible means for the redress of injustices injustices within states. That is, through the right of nations to address one another peacefully concerning their desires and disputes, and the duty of nations to seek resolutions for their disputes and progress towards greater international justice peaceably rather than through force. Now, my interpretation of the first part of Kant's position, that is my account of his uh, denial of any right to rebellion uh, at the national level, is not uh, particularly controversial. My interpretation of its second part is more controversial. Many have held that Kant argues for the necessity of a single world state with the power to enforce its laws coercively. And uh, also many hold that Kant's discussion of cosmopolitan right uh, concerns only the right of nations to approach one another for purposes of commerce, not a general right of nations to make diplomatic representations to one another and a correspondingly general duty of nations to respond to such representations and to arbitrate their differences when need be in an international league or forum that has no power for the coercive enforcement of its rulings. 
in order to, in order to sustain the interpretation of Kant's conception of intra and international justice that I have sketched, I will have to show that Kant does not argue for an international state rather than for a league or forum of nations. And we'll also have to show that his explicit argument for the right of nations to approach one another peaceably for purposes of commerce presupposes a more general obligation towards peaceable international diplomacy that Kant does not make explicit. So uh, the first part of the paper then concerns justice within nations. Um, and in this part, I'm, I'm going to make some cuts that I hope you won't notice uh, for reasons of time. The foundation of Kant's theory of both national and international justice is what he calls the universal principle of right, which allows each agent as much scope for freedom of action as is compatible with an equal scope for freedom of action for any agent with whom the former might interact. He says any action is right if it can coexist with everyone's freedom in accordance with a universal law or if on its maxim the freedom of choice of each can coexist with everyone's freedom in accordance with a universal law." Unquote. Now, this principle might seem to be a strictly a priori principle, derived either from the universal law formulation of the categorical imperative, or maybe directly from the concept of freedom itself as the foundation of morality, but in fact it presupposes an empirical assumption, namely that the freedom of action of any human agent as the expression of her freedom of choice can limit the expression of freedom of choice in her freedom of action by any other, which is not something that can be known a priori. That is, that our actions actually have effects on each other is not something that we could know a priori. Rather than consisting solely of a priori principles valid for all rational beings, as does what Kant calls the groundwork for morals, his metaphysics of morals, including the metaphysical foundations of right, explores the implications of the a priori principle uh, of morality for rational beings in our empirical circumstances, just as his metaphysics of nature explores the implications of the foundational principles of theoretical philosophy for creatures like us who can only detect matter by the perception of motion. Other empirical facts on which Kant's doctrine depends, or perhaps more precisely stated, the more concrete facts on which the general fact that the freely chosen actions of human beings can limit the freedom of each other depends, are that human beings have bodies that occupy space and thus need a place on the earth to occupy, that our subsistence depends on the use and consumption of objects other than our own bodies, objects that can only be produced on a piece of the earth, and that the ground that human beings uh, collectively have available is finite, being on the surface of a sphere, any part of which is in principle accessible from any other, with further no natural division of this surface into determinate parts naturally assigned to particular individuals. These are all empirical facts. As far as the concept of rational beings goes, they could be quite otherwise. A further empirical assumption that Kant makes throughout his practical philosophy, this is already assumed in uh, his, uh, the transition from the fundamental principle of morality to the categorical imperative uh, as the presentation of the moral law to human beings who experience it as an imperative, that is to say as a constraint, is this further empirical assumption is that human beings are not always naturally impelled, uh, let alone compelled to adhere faithfully to all the dictates of morality and can thus reasonably assume that neither they themselves nor their fellows will always conform to the requirements of justice out of respect for the moral law alone. All these assumptions, I think, although they're contingent and only empirically known, are uh, pretty much incontrovertible. Now, the central tenets of Kant's theory of justice follow from the application of the moral law to us as creatures who live in these empirical circumstances. In Kant's view, we have an innate right to freedom from interference with our person, that is, the right to our bodily integrity, but also the right to use our bodies in any way that does not infringe upon the freedom of others, including the right to speak freely to others as long, quote, as it is entirely up to them whether they want to believe, unquote, what one tells them. That is, as long as one is what he calls irreproachable, 
that is not performing any act that threatens or injures the rights of others. Others have no right to attack one physically, for example, to wrest something out of one's hand. But human beings also, as I suggested, need a place to put their bodies, to stand or to rest, as well as a place to cultivate food and materials for warmth and clothing, or in more complex economies like the ones we live in, to perform other sorts of work, as well as ways in which to exchange the products of these labors. And for these reasons, they must be allowed to acquire rights to property, in the first instance to land, but also to um, temporary, that is contractual or enduring, from, that is familial and uh, long-standing economic relations with each other. Yet since the land of the earth is not naturally divided into determinate parcel, parcels, human beings must so divide it before individuals can acquire rights to particular parcels. And since no particular human being has a natural relation to any particular piece of land or place, but other things being equal, any person could use any piece of land or external object. Any individual's claim to any particular parcel or object, Kant always thinks in the first instance about land, must be accepted by others. And if an individual's claim to a particular parcel is to be just or rightful, the consent of others, or what Kant calls the omnilateral will, that one person should use a particular parcel, must be freely obtained. That is, not itself be an undue limitation on the freedom of others. Um, and I think the only kind of division of land and resources that all who could use them freely could freely consent to uh, must be one that all involved can see as in some fundamental way equal or fair which I think Kant would understand primarily in terms of equality or of opportunity. But further, since human beings, as a matter of empirical fact, cannot trust each other or themselves to adhere even to a just division of land and resources out of the goodness of their heart, hearts, that is, out of respect for the moral law alone, they must have assurance of some other motivation for adhering to such a division, that is, the division of resources and assignments of rights to them to which all could freely consent must also be coercively enforceable. So Kant infers that the, what he calls the collective general parentheses common will must also be a quote powerful will that can provide everyone this assurance. Or he says that something external can only be mine or yours. Uh, that is, be property, in a civil condition or state, that is, the condition of being under a general, external, that is, public, law-giving, accompanied with power." Unquote. Uh, further, since everyone needs to acquire rights to property, but is in, under a moral obligation to do so rightfully, that is, with the possibility of consent that could be freely given by others, Everyone is under an obligation to enter into the civil condition or to be part of a just state and can even resist, quote, with right, those who are not willing to submit to it and who want to interfere with, unquote, any individual's own attempt to create the conditions for rightful possession. So Kant says that the subject must also be permitted to constrain everyone else with whom he comes into conflict about whether an external object is his or another's to enter along with him into a civil constitution, unquote. And this is what requires the addition of what Kant calls public right to what he calls private right, that is the addition of a specification of the rights and obligations connected with the existence of government to uh, the specification of the rights and um, obligations connected with, uh, with private property. Now, from these considerations, Kant derives the conditions for the just government of any region of the surface of the earth. The, namely the form of governance that he calls republican. The purpose of government is primarily to make the innate right of all under its scope secure and to make determinate as well as secure their acquired rights to property in a way to which all could freely consent. To accomplish these goals according to Kant, a just or republican government must con contain three distinct authorities. First, quote, the sovereign authority in the person of the legislator or lawgiver, unquote which establishes the legal framework for the determinate division of the territory of the land and the assignment of individual rights 
to the parcel so divided in a way to which all under its rule could freely consent. Second, quote, the executive authority in the person of the ruler or regent, parentheses, in conformity to law, unquote, who implements the laws passed by the legislature and in particular coercively enforces them when that is necessary, as it inevitably sometimes will be. And third, and finally, quote, the judicial authority, parentheses, to award to each what is his in accordance with the law, end parentheses, in the person of the judge, end quote. That is the authority to decide disputes over rights in accordance with the general laws of the legislature and the regulations for their implementation uh, instituted by the executive in a way that must also be enforced by the executive. Now Kant does not assume that these three different legal persons or authorities must be natural persons or individuals. And he in fact assumes that in an ideally Republican government, the legislature will be a representative body larger than one person, uh, but smaller than the population as a whole. And he assumes that the executive can be either a single person or a council. He says nothing explicit about the judiciary, but I suppose he assumes that there will be individual judges, but there may be a multiplicity of them. Uh, but however all that goes, he's adamant that these three persons, whether they're natural persons or not, must be numerically distinct from each other. And that in particular, he's adamant that the natural or moral person of the legislature must be distinct from that of the executive. This is because in the nature of things, and again, Kant seems to be making an empirical assumption here, although once again an assumption that seems pretty indisputable. Uh, he says a government, and here he uses a, a word that clearly indicates uh, executive, um, a government that was also legislative, so an executive that was also legislative would have to be called a despotic as opposed to a patriotic government, he says. That is, um, it can only be assumed that if the power to make, uh, if the powers to make laws and to enforce them were in the same hands, then the laws would inevitably be made to serve the interests of the ruler only, not the interests of all the citizens. To further block this outcome, Kant insists that the legislative authority, uh, quote, can belong only to the united will of the people, unquote, and must be regarded as the ultimate sovereign in the state, while the, quote, ruler, and here again he uses the word regent of the state, uh, the rex or princeps, uh, whether that is an individual or a directorate, is only the, quote, agent of the state, or or the genuine sovereign, the legislature, and is, quote, subject to the law, and so is put under obligation through the law by another, namely the sovereign. So executive is an agent of the legislature, which is the actual source of sovereignty. Now, um, I'm gonna skip a bit here uh, and continue. Although the functions of the executive branch of government are not confined to the coercive enforcement of the law, Kant is adamant that the coercive enforcement of the law must be confined to the executive branch of the government. His basic argument for this restriction is that a government with multiple loci of coercion would be basically as good as anarchy or no government at all. To protect conflict or anarchy within a government in which multiple branches each separately had the power of coercion, yet another branch over those would be needed to forcibly resolve the inevitable disputes between the former, but then as long as the original branches retained coercive force, there would inevitably, inevitably be conflict between them and this higher branch, leading to the need for a yet higher branch, and so on, ad infinitum. Kant makes this argument in a 1793 essay called Theory and Practice. He says there, for that the Constitution should contain a law authorizing the overthrow of the existing Constitution is an obvious contradiction, for then it would also have to contain a publicly constituted opposing power, so that there would have to be a second head of state to protect the people's rights against the first, and then yet a third to decide between the two, and so on. He repeats this argument in the 1797 Doctrine of Right from the Metaphysics of Morals. I'll just um, skip that quotation. 
the argument, uh, as he puts it there, in any case is, is a little bit confusing because Kant has previously made it clear that the executive part of government, which should, uh, oh, never mind, sorry, scratch that. You didn't hear that last bit. I'll just continue um, that his basic claim is that uh, even a legislature cannot have power to use coercion against its executive agent, even if it doesn't like what the executive is doing, because then there would be two uh, separate sources of coercive authority within a government, and you would need a third, and so on. You'd get the infinite regress argument going. As Kant puts it, quote, the sovereign, that is the legislature, can take the rulers, that is the executives, uh, power away from him, depose him, or reform his administration. But it cannot punish him, for punishment is an act of the executive authority, which has the supreme capacity to exercise coercion, and it would be self-contradictory for him to be subject to coercion." Unquote. And when he talks about punishment in this context, he's thinking particularly about the execution of Charles I of England. Uh, but neither, he continues, can the people act outside of their parliament to use coercion against the executive uh, or against the parliament itself. For people without a parliament or people not acting through their parliament, quote, cannot react at once as a commonwealth but only as a mob, unquote. That is, such people cannot act as a state. But since we're all under a duty to be part of a state or civil condition, in undermining their state by acting as a mob, a people would violate one of their most fundamental moral obligations. Or more precisely, since there would be no such thing as a people in that case, the individuals involved would be individually violating their fundamental moral obligations. So, although the ruler, the person that Kant calls the ruler, the executive, is only an agent of the sovereign people and its representational parliament, neither the parliament nor the people as a whole can have the right to use coercion against the sovereign. Now, several uh, scholars, uh, Arthur Ripstein for one, and Sharon Bird and Joachim Hushka, uh, writing as a, as a couple for the other, have recently and forcibly argued that uh, by all of this, Kant does not mean to prohibit rebellion against any powerful band that calls itself a government. For a band, that does not rule in accordance with laws to which the people could freely consent is not a rightful government at all. It's just one mob that happens to have a lot of power making war on another unorganized group that happens to have less power, uh, with the first mob having no particular right to rule and the second being under no particular prohibition against resisting their rule. So a regime that openly wars upon part of its own population uh, on this conception would not be a rightful government at all. And so Kant would not be suggesting that there's any prohibition to resistance against it. Now, one would like to think that Kant had been so reasonable to hold such a view. Although um, the remark that he makes in the essay on theory and practice, to my mind, puts it in doubt that he does. There he says that, uh, quote, even if the legislative power or its agent, the head of state, has gone so far as to violate the original contract and it has thereby, according to the subject's concept, that is the concept of all the subjects, the whole citizenry, forfeited the right to be legislator inasmuch as he has empowered the government to proceed quite violently or tyrannically, a subject is still not permitted any resistance by way of counteracting force. That's what Kant says about unjust governments, whether we like it or not. But in any case, let's just put the case of patently unjust states to one side. And consider the case of states, the, the much more common case, uh, or at least reasonably common, states that rise sufficiently above some threshold of justice to make them worthy of preservation, but that nevertheless being imperfect, as all human institutions are, still contain some legislative or executive injustices. If the people have no right of rebellion against such states, do they have no legitimate way to seek redress of injustices at all? 
Well, of course not. Kant is very careful to accompany his rejection of any right to forcible rebellion with a right of the people to make injustices known through the freedom of the pen, as he calls it, and a correlative duty of the government to respond by making either its laws or their administration more just. Now, Kant had already made this point clear in a famous essay of 1784 uh, called What is Enlightenment? In, by means of an argument that even government officials or licensees who in their official capacity, what he to our lights misleadingly calls the private use of their reason, must follow the existing regulations of their government whether they like them or not, as such individuals, he argued, nevertheless retain the right to the public use of their reason, that is, the right to make their criticisms of government practice known through scholarly publication. There he seems to restrict this right to make their criticisms known to uh, people authorized by, employed or authorized by the government in some way. Authorized, he's thinking of actually doctors and lawyers who may not work for the government but are licensed by the government through scholarly publication. So this applies only to some relatively small percentage of the population. However, in, in the 1793 essay, uh, Theory and Practice, nine years later, Kant does generalize this point to all subjects. He says here simply, quote, a non-recalcitrant subject must be able to assume that his ruler does not want to do him any wrong. Accordingly, since every human being still has his inalienable rights, which he can never give up even if he wanted to, and about which he's authorized to judge for himself, while on that assumption the wrong that in his, his opinion is done to him occurs only from the supreme power's error or ignorance of certain consequences of his laws, a citizen, that is to say any citizen, must have, with the approval of the ruler himself, the authorization to make known publicly his opinions about what it is in the ruler's arrangement arrangements that seems to him to be a wrong against the commonwealth. For to assume that the head of state could never uh, err or be ignorant of something would be to represent him as favored with divine inspiration and raised above humanity, which Kant is having no part of. So freedom of the pen, kept within the limits of esteem and love for the constitution, is the sole palladium of the people's rights, he says. Now, in this famous passage, Kant is not making any uh, explicit distinction between legislature and executive. And maybe it would be best to interpret the passage as insisting that the people must have the freedom of pen to make known their complaints against injustice in either the laws of the land themselves or in the administration and enforcement of the lands. Uh, in other words, they have the right to make known their complaints against both legislature and executive and uh, correlatively, uh, that both legislature and executive must be assumed to want to be informed about their shortcomings in order to better fulfill their own duties to legislate and rule justly. In the Doctrine of Right from the 1797 uh, Metaphysics of Morals, Kant also, to some extent, seems to obscure the difference between legislature and executive by using peculiar phrases like existing legislative authority and legislative head of state which might seem to refer to the legislature, but could also be taken to an executive ruling as the lawfully designated agent of the legislature. But he seems to be referring specifically to the executive when he says that, quote, if the organ of the sovereign, that is the ruler, proceeds contrary to the law, for example, if he goes against the law of equality in assigning the burdens of the state in matters of taxation, recruitment, and so forth, Subjects indeed may, uh, may indeed oppose this injustice by complaints, but not by resistance." Unquote. In line with the generally greater emphasis in the doctrine of right than in previous works on the division between legislature and executive, Kant also goes beyond stating merely that the people have the right to make their criticisms known to their ruler or executive by also asserting that parliament, the legislative and sovereign branch of government, has the right to passive, although not active, resistance to the executive. That is, it has, does not have the right to attempt, quote, to coerce the government to take a certain course of action, unquote, but it has the right, quote, of refusal of the people in parliament to accede to every demand the government puts forth as necessary for 
administering the state, unquote. Presumably, for example, the right to vote the executive funds that it wants. And one case that uh, Kant refers to in, uh, in a footnote in one of these works is the refusal of the uh, British Parliament to vote ship money for Charles I. And so the suggestion is, in you know, getting the chronology right, they had no right to forcibly re rebel against Charles I. They were ultimately wrong to execute him. The function of punishment belongs only to the executive, but it was they were entirely within their rights to um, refuse to vote him the funds that he wanted for a war or war preparations that they didn't approve of. Um, okay, Kant explicitly presents this as a right of the legislature or, quote, the people in parliament, unquote, but he says nothing to preclude the natural assumption that ind individuals outside of parliament still have the right not only to bring their criticisms of the executive to parliament to spur it to reform or of resistance to the executive, but that they also have the right to make their criticisms of parliament itself known to parliament in order to spur it to improve its own laws. So, Kant argues that there must be a monopoly of power within a coherent state, a monopoly that is assigned to the executive branch for the enforcement uh, of the laws of the legislature on the one hand and of the verdicts of the judiciary on the other hand. He assumes, he argues thus that there can be no right to coercive resistance to the coercion of the executive. Um, but he also asserts that the people in parliament have the right to reform the executive and even to passively resist its demand while all in individuals, thus the people outside of parliament, have the right to criticize both executive and parliament on the presumption that these authorities want to know of their own shortcomings and to do better in fulfilling uh, their duty to bring about a just civil condition. The monopoly on coercion that is necessary to have a coherent state must be accompanied with the right to criticism of the government that in the real circumstances of human existence where improvement is always necessary is an indispensable means to the existence of a just state. Now, because of the monopoly on coercion within a sovereign state, the fundamental right of the citizens to seek greater justice must be restricted to the freedom of speech and the pen. Now what I want to argue is that it is Kant's view that for what is virtually the opposite reason, namely the impossibility of coercive enforcement of the rights of territorial states against one another, the fundamental right of states against one another must also be construed essentially as a right of free speech. Uh, as the fundamental right of citizens within a state is. That is, states uh, must have the right to make diplomatic presentations of their grievances ag uh, against one another and the correlative duty to try to reform their relations to one another in the direction of greater justice. So now I come to the second part of the paper, justice between nations. Uh, to make this point, I have to address two common assumptions in the interpretation of Kant's conceptions of the right of nations, cosmopolitan right, and perpetual, what he calls perpetual peace. One, that the ideal means to international justice and per perpetual peace would be a state of nations. That might sound sort of redundant in English. The German term is Völkerstaat, that is a legal state of peoples. Nations uh, is the translation for Filka, meaning people. Uh, uh, the ideal, uh, on this interpretation, the ideal means to international justice would be a state of nations with coercive power rather than a mere league of nations, a Filka Bund, without such power. And the second uh, common assumption is that cosmopolitan, what he kind of calls cosmopolitan right is restricted to the freedom of nations to attempt to engage each other in commerce or freedoms of individuals from different nations to attempt to engage each other in commerce. Uh, I'll, I will argue, however, that although Kant is not completely unequivocal on this point, the predominant argument in all his political writings is that perpetual peace can be, only be achieved by a non-coercive league of nations, not a coercive state of nations. Uh, and further, that although he is not himself explicit on this point, the right of nations to approach one another for commercial purposes presupposes a more general right and duty to maintain diplomatic relations with one another. So I'll address the first point at some length and the second point more briefly, if we even have time for it. Um, Kant regards the achievement of world peace as the ultimate duty of justice. He says that reason from the throne of the highest morally legislative power 
delivers an absolute condemnation of war as a procedure for determining rights, and on the contrary, makes a condition of peace which cannot be instituted or assured without a pact of nations among themselves, a direct duty." Unquote. He doesn't conceive of world peace as the ultimate duty of justice because it might be the innate, it might be the ultimately necessary condition for worldwide realization of the innate right to freedom of the person. And he doesn't conceive of world peace as a duty, as what he calls a duty of virtue, that is, for example, uh, as the necessary condition for the worldwide practice of, of beneficence or charity. His view is rather that world peace is the necessary condition for the worldwide security of the acquired right of property. He says, it can be said that establishing universal and lasting peace constitutes not merely a part of the doctrine of right, but rather the entire final end of the doctrine of right within the limits of mere reason. For the condition of peace is alone that condition in which what is mine and what is yours, that is property, is secured under laws for a multitude of human beings living in proximity to one another, hence those who are united under a constitution. But the rule for this constitution as a norm for others cannot be derived from the experience of those who have hitherto found it most to their advantage, it must rather be derived a priori by reason from the idea of a rightful association of human beings under public law as such." Unquote. Now this passage has to be interpreted carefully, for although the idea that anything we do, we must do rightfully might be thought to be an entirely a priori idea, that is to follow from the fundamental principle of morality without any a posteriori or empirical assumptions, and although Kant certainly wants to distinguish his uh, imperative for peace from any empirical recommenda recommendation of peace on their terms as being in the interest of some ruling parties, in spite of all this, as we've already seen, the very idea that we must acquire property rightfully already includes some empirical assumptions grounding our need for property itself, and the argument that only worldwide peace can make property uh, ultimately secure is grounded on the particular empirical assumption that any piece of territory on the face of the earth can in principle be reached from any other, from which it follows that if any piece of property is rightfully and securely enjoyed only with the consent to its use from all who might have been in a position to use it, then any piece of property is in fact rightfully and securely enjoyed only if, in principle, the entire population of the earth could consent to its use. Because, in principle, the entire, anyone from the entire population of the earth could get himself to any particular piece of property and use it. So such consent could only obtain in, or maybe we could say would be equivalent to, a condition of world peace. For in it and only in it would there be a fundamental absence of grounds for territorial disputes and the wars to which they lead. Maybe to forestall one question that is bound to come up later, I should just add here as a parenthesis that uh, the only um, real ground for international conflict that Kant is, is considering is disputes over territory. Uh, and there might be other, we might think there are other things like disputes over religion, for example, which might lead people to war. Um, and he's, he's leaving that out of consideration. Uh, okay, I'll return to the text. Uh, the centerpiece of Kant's theory of world peace is what he calls, he writes this famous essay towards perpetual peace in the form of a treaty. Uh, and he's really proposing this treaty to the crowned heads of Europe as the way they ought to regulate themselves. Uh, so, so it includes provisional articles and then preliminary articles and then definitive articles and then various appendices. And the heart is the first definitive article for perpetual peace, which states that, quote, the civil constitution in every state shall be republican, unquote. What he means by republican, I'll say a little bit more about that. It's to be taken in a quite general way. Uh, Certainly, it doesn't mean that the party that calls itself Republican in the United States at the present time should be the only kind of party that's in charge. And actually, when you work it through, uh, I think it would be safe to say that the current British government would count as Republican in Kant's terms, even though, you know, formally speaking, it's still a monarchy. But we can come back to that if, if you want in discussion. Uh, the civil constitution in every state shall be Republican. This must be understood. I suggest as a 
an if and only if assertion. That is Kant's view is that all states becoming republic, or what's actually more important, being governed as if they were republics, with the voice of the people in parliament being decisive for all matters of state, is supposed to be both a sufficient and necessary condition for world peace. But like everything else in Kant's doctrine of right, the argument makes certain empirical assumptions. In particular, it's based on the assumption that in non-republics, where, quote, the head of state is not a member of the state, but its proprietor, and gives up nothing at all of his feasts, hunts, pleasure palaces, court festivals, and so forth, unquote, if he decides upon war. Then, deciding on war, quote, as upon, as upon a kind of pleasure party, is the easiest thing in the world, unquote. But, quote, when the consent of the citizens of a state is required in order to decide whether, the shall be, whether there shall be war or not, and it cannot be otherwise in a republican constitution, then nothing is more natural than that they will be very hesitant to begin such a bad game, since they would have to decide to take upon themselves all the hardships, hardships of war, such as themselves doing the fighting and paying the costs of the war from their own belongings." Unquote. Now, Kant's terminology makes it clear here that the reasoning is actually empirical. He uses terms like, nothing is more natural. And indeed, the reasoning is probabilistic. He says they will be very hesitant. The citizens of the Republic will be very hesitant to make war. He doesn't say it's logically impossible, just very unlikely. But Kant is nevertheless sufficiently confident in this probability to make it the foundation of his argument in perpetual peace, which is really a message to the monarchs of Europe that all their efforts to create a balance of power will be in vain as long as they refuse to reform their countries into republics. This is why, after initially flirting with the idea that there might be a natural transition of governments from monarchies into republics, and therefore a natural mechanism that must, event must eventually produce world peace, Kant eventually argues that the spread of republican government, and on that basis the spread of peace, can only be achieved by what he calls moral politicians. That is, politicians who make it their, quote, principle that once defects that could not, that could not have been presented are found within the constitution of a state, not have been prevented. Once defects that could not have been prevented are found within the constitution of a state or in the relations of states, it is a duty, especially for heads of state, to be concerned about how they can be improved as soon as possible and brought into conformity with moral right, unquote, and, and who voluntarily attempt to fulfill this duty. Now, I said that the worldwide existence of republican governments would remove only the fundamental ground for a dispute. For even republics that for prudential or even moral reasonings are unwilling to make war upon each other can still be expected to have some grounds for disputes given the lack of determinate boundaries, or in other words, given the potential for dispute over matters concerning ownership of property, rights to the fruits of land and sea, and the right to move goods, matters all affecting the most basic needs of human beings as embodied creatures. So given that the mere existence of republics, even the worldwide existence of republics, would not in fact remove such grounds for dispute, how are republics to settle such disputes without resort to war? Here's where the first controversy over the interpretation of Kant's theory of peace, I mean, in contemporary scholarly literature arises. In each of his three main political texts, Kant first clearly asserts that the forum for the resolution of such disputes, and thus the basis for world peace, must be a federation or league of nations that does not have the coercive power of an ordinary territorial state rather than a state of nations, which would be an international legal power that would have an instrument of forcible coercion over and above the coercive forces of the executive branches of the member states. So in the second definitive article for perpetual peace in the essay of that name, Kant says that, quote, the right of nations shall be based on a federalism of free states, a league of nations, which, however, need not be a state of nations, and which does not look to acquiring any power of a state, but only to preserving and securing the freedom of a state itself and of other states in league with it, but without there being any need for them to subject themselves to public law, laws and coercion under them." Unquote. 
In the theory and practice essay, Kant writes that peace can come about only if states create, quote, a condition that is not a cosmopolitan commonwealth under a single head, but is still a rightful condition of federation in accordance with a commonly agreed upon right of nations, unquote. And in the Doctrine of Right from uh, the Metaphysics of Morals, he says that, quote, this alliance must not involve a sovereign authority as in a civil constitution, but only an association. Genossenschaft, parentheses, a federation, a federalität, unquote. So this all seems pretty clear. But in spite of these clear statements, there are a number of commentators who have been arguing that Kant does advocate an international organization with, co with coercive powers as the ultimate guarantor of peace, and that he introduces the idea of a non-coercive League of Nations as only a second best approximation to such a state of nations, which is all that is possible in the imperfect conditions of human existence, or maybe even, one commentator in particular argues this, uh, that um, a non-coercive League of Nations is only a transition to a more perfect state of nations that can eventually be achieved in the actual conditions of human existence. Now these uh, proposals seem just to fly in the face of the statements I read to you so far, but uh, Kant does make some statements that might suggest that he ultimately advocates a, a full-blown state of nations, not just a League of Nations. So, for example, the very last paragraph of theory and practice includes the words that, quote, theory, which proceeds from the principle of right as to what relations among human beings and states ought to be, commends to earthly gods, that is, rulers, the maxim always so to behave in their conflicts that such a universal state of nations will thereby be ushered in." Unquote. And the second definitive article of Perpetual Peace, which I quoted already as saying that there should be a League of Nations, uh, concludes with the remark that, quote, parentheses, if all is not to be lost, end parentheses, in place of the positive idea of a world republic, only the negative surrogate of a league that averts wars endures." Unquote. That seems to suggest that the League of Nations is second best. And finally, the, the last section of Kant's discussion of peace in the section of, on the right of nations in the Doctrine of Rights states that, quote, perpetual peace, the ultimate goal of the whole right of nations, is indeed an unachievable idea. But still, the political principles directed towards perpetual peace of entering into such alliances of states which serve for continual approximation to it are not unachievable. And he suggests that this approximation is precisely, quote, an association of several states to preserve peace, unquote. Now, at least if taken out of context, these statements would appear to lend credence to the idea that Kant ultimately advocates a state of nations with coercive powers, uh, and that a League of Nations without such powers is something provisional or second best or whatever. Nevertheless, I think there is overwhelming reason to think that Kant's considered position is, in fact, that peace requires a league of nations and not a coercive state of nations. Uh, not only uh, must his apparent statements to the contrary be read carefully in their contexts, actually, for example, the last section of the Doctrine of Right is concerned with uh, what should be done before all nations are republics, not what conditions should obtain after that goal is achieved. More importantly, while Kant makes no explicit argument why a state of nations should be necessary, he does offer very explicit arguments why there should only be a league of nations. And beyond these arguments, there's what well, seems to me at least a simple but profound argument why peace should require only a league of nations, which Kant doesn't state, but which does, it seem, again, it seems to me, follow directly from the basic uh, elements of his theory. So first, the arguments that he does state. He offers what, both what seems to be an a priori argument and an empirical argument why there should only be a League of Nations. In fact, the apparently a priori argument also involves an empirical assumption. As we've seen, however, the use of empirical assumptions in either argument would be no objection to them, for Kant's doctrine of right, again, concerns precisely the duties the duties that follow from the fundamental principle of morality in the empirical circumstances of human existence. Okay, what seems to be Kant's a priori argument is stated immediately in his explication of the second definitive article in Perpetual Peace. Here he says, nations as states can be appraised as individuals, 
who in their natural condition, that is in their independence from external laws, already wrong one another by being near one another. And each of them, for the sake of its security, can and ought to require others to enter with it into a constitution similar to a civil constitu constitution in which each can be assured its right. That would be, this would be a league of nations, which however need not be a state of nations. That would be a contradiction inasmuch as every state involves the relation of a superior legislating to an inferior obeying, namely the people. But a number of states within one state would constitute only one nation, and this contradicts the presupposition, since here we have to consider the right of nations in relation to one another insofar as they comprise different states and are not to be fused into a single state. End of that quote. Now, this argument starts off with the assertion that it's a moral duty of states that cannot avoid contact with one another to enter into a condition of international justice, just as it is a duty of individuals who cannot avoid contact with one another to enter into a condition of justice, namely a state. Kant then argues that this can only be a non-coercive league of nations rather than a state of nations precisely because it's definitive of an ordinary state, the states that are coming, unavoidably coming into contact with each other, that each contain a unique and uncontested monopoly of coercion. But if states were to join in a state of nations with coercive power, then their own executive branches would not be su superior and uncontested monopolies of coercion after all, which is to say they would no longer be proper states. So, the very idea of a state of states claims is incoherent. Now, this argument, as I say, may, might seem to be entirely a priori. That is, it might seem to really just be concerning a conceptual contradiction. There's a con contradiction between the concept of a state and the concept of a state of states. But it's not, I think, entirely a priori, because it assumes from the outset that the globe is, is already divided into distinct states. For this reason, however, you might say it's just question begging. That is, it might presuppose from the outset a negative answer to what could be taken to be the real question, namely whether the traditional division of the globe into separate territorial states with no coercive power above them ought to be replaced with a single global state that has coercive powers of enforcement. However, I think, in line with Kant's basic methodology throughout the metaphysics of morals, the division of the globe into separate nations could be taken to be, once again, a contingent, empirically known, but nevertheless incontrovertible fact about human nature and history that determines the parameters within which we are to attempt to realize the ideals of morality. The basic facts about the evolution of human societies from small troops of hunter-gatherers to larger, settled, uh, agrarian and ultimately commercial societies, which was very much studied in 18th century historiography, for example, by Scots such as Lord Keynes and Adam Ferguson, whose work was well known to Kant, combined with the empirical fact that although every point on the globe is in principle reachable from every other, settled human societies have formed long before transportation over long distances was very easy, these facts combine to ensure that states approximating to or at least offering the potential for just civil conditions will have emerged long before a single global state would actually be possible. What Kant calls really possible, that is, possible consistent with the empirical facts of, of the, the relevant empirical facts. So I suggest the existence of separate territorial states should in fact be taken as a given on the basis of which the further conditions for global peace have to be developed. And then Kant's argument that there's a contradiction in the very idea of a state that both has and does not have a monopoly of coercion would apply. However, Kant does not think that the existence of separate territorial states is an insuperable obstacle to the emergence of conditions for world peace. He holds on the, on the contrary, he holds that, quote, if good fortune should ordain that a powerful, enlightened people can form itself into a republic, which by its nature must be inclined to perpetual peace, then this would provide a focal point of federative union for other states, to which attach themselves to it, and so to secure a condition of freedom of states conformably with the idea of the right of nations." Unquote. 
the assumption here seems to be that states will be led to follow the example of one that has already become a genuine republic by the sheer attractiveness of the example and not by any use of force on the part of that state which has already become a republic. Like, we're not going to export uh, justice by force. That's, that would be a contradiction. Now, Kant offers further explicit considerations in favor of the existence of uh, separate states and the dangers of a worldwide course of power. His most famous argument against such a goal is stated in the first supplement to the definitive Articles of Perpetual Peace. He says there that the right of, the na of nations presupposes the separation of many neighboring states independent of one another. And though such a condition is of itself a condition for war, of war, unless a federative union of them prevents the outbreak of hostilities, this is nevertheless better in accordance with the idea of reason than the fusion of them by one power overgrowing the rest and passing into a universal monarchy, since as the range of government expands, laws progressively lose their vigor. And a soulless despotism, after it has destroyed the seed of good, finally deteriorates into anarchy." Unquote. Now Kant's argument here seems to rest on two empirical claims. First, he assumes that a worldwide regime with coercive power would only come about by the forcible action of one state successively conquering others, so that the emergence of such a state would inevitably involve injustice. Now, this uh, is not a conclusive objection uh, by itself, or shouldn't for Kant be a conclusive objection, because Kant actually assumes that as a matter of empirical fact, all states emerge from a crucible of violence, that in their origins, all states are unjust. Uh, although they may gradually become more just. Uh, so his position is that in, has to be that unless we are to be condemned to living with injustice forever, unjust origins by themselves don't, don't entail, so, as it were, permanently unjust outcomes. But then Kant makes a second assertion, which is that a state that is too large inevitably degenerates into anarchy, anarchy and thus into injustice. He doesn't spell out his reasons for this assumption, but they would presumably be that either officials too far from the center will inevitably begin to take the law into their own hands and to govern in their own benefit, or conversely, that the center can prevent that only by a harsh administration that will itself become unjust. Whatever the details, the claim seems to be empirical. But again, that's no objection. Again, as I've said numerous times, the metaphysics of morals has the task of determining how a priori goals of morality are to be achieved given the empirical realities of human nature. And if the facts of human nature are such as Kant supposes, then it seems the goal of world peace must be achieved through a league of nations and not through a state of nations. Now Kant follows this argument with a teleological consideration. He says that nature does not will a single world state as is evidenced by its, quote, use of two means to prevent peoples from intermingling and to separate them. Well, here he comes to religion. Differences of language and of religion, which do bring with them the propensity to mutual hatred and pretexts of war, for war, but yet with increase in culture lead to understanding in a peace that is produced and secured by means of their equilibrium in liveliest competition, unquote. He also adds commerce as a force that brings various peoples, quote, into a peaceable relation to each other, and so into understanding community and peaceable relations with one another, unquote. So he supposes that nature provides both repulsive and attractive forces, it's one of his favorite images, that should give rise to a peaceful equilibrium among separate nations rather than a single state of nations. The idea is that differences of language are what we might nowadays call ethnic differences. They, perhaps not exclusively differences of languages, as well as religious differences, are forces that tend to separate people. But commerce is a force that tends to bring people together. And these two forces working uh, in conjunction with each other might achieve a certain kind of equilibrium, just as attractive and repulsive forces in his physics achieve a certain kind of equilibrium. Now, about this argument, we have to keep in mind that teleological language is never idle or careless in Kant. Although, of course, moral goals have to be set by pure reason and not by nature, Kant also assumes that we should 
um, take coincidence between the moral goals of reason and the apparent goals of nature as a regulative principle and not lightly dismiss as morally relevant what seem to be tendencies of nature. So that nature itself seems to tend towards an equilibrium of separate states rather than towards a single state is at the least strongly suggestive or maybe in a certain way confirms uh, what our moral goal should be as well as what it can be. Um, Okay, uh, there's a little section about commerce I'm going to just summarize in a second, but before I do that, I'll just uh, consider what I referred to as an argument against the necessity of a state of nations with coercive powers that Kant doesn't actually make, but that seems to me to follow directly from his premises. What I have in mind is the implication of his assumption that republics are by their nature inclined towards perpetual peace. Grounds for territorial disputes will certainly arise between republics. Naturally shifting riverbeds and shorelines offer an a posteriori, if not a priori, guarantee for that. But genuine republics, as Kant understands them, will not have the will to go to war over such disputes. Without a will to war, all that they would need is a court to hear and arbitrate their disputes. Because, as genuine republics, they will be predisposed to accept a fair resolution of their disputes. Ordinary courts often need the coercive powers of the executive branch to enforce their decrees, in particular to inflict the punishments that they mete out. But that's because ordinary mortals or individuals are not always moved by morality alone, and sometimes need the threat of punishment, which in turn sometimes needs actual punishments, to stay within line, to stay within line. But, perhaps ironically, because of the collective self-interest of their members, republics on Kant's conception are in a way more perfect moral agents than individuals. That is, they have no will to go to war because it's against the self-interest of their citizens. And so, the idea seems to be they will not go to war if they can find any other way to resolve their disputes. A forum in which to arbitrate their disputes is all they will ever want. So on Kant's premises, once all states have become republics, of course that's a big if, there would simply be no need for a state of nations with coercive powers. Whether or, not be, whether or not it would be possible for such a state to maintain a condition of justice. This is not because, as Arthur Ripstein supposes, states don't have property claims. It's true that in a Kantian republic, the executive doesn't have a proprietary relationship to the territory of the state, but the citizens collectively have a collective interest in the territory of the states because of their individual interest in its separate lots. And, as we've seen, natural forces will inevitably lead to disputes with the citizenry of other states over their collective territorial claims. What, obvi <coughs> what obviates the, needs, uh, the need for coercive enforcement of the resolution of such disputes among separate republics is simply their collective will against making war. Um, okay, that completes my discussion of the omnilateral relation among nations that Kant proposes as the condition for the possibility of world peace in his discussion of what he calls the right of nations. I'll just make one last comment about um, the right of, of individuals of nations to approach each other that Kant discusses under the heading of cosmopolitan right. This is generally interpreted as um, simply the right of individuals to approach the territories of other nations and the individuals of the other nations on those territories to offer uh, goods and services for sale. Um, and his claim is that people should have the right to approach other nation, the, the territory of other nations, and that other nations have to uh, sort of be nice to them, not immediately kill them or imprison them when they show up, although the other nations are under no obligation to uh, grant them rights of residency, uh, to allow them to set up permanent trading stations or to buy any of the stuff or sell them anything at all. They could just very nicely say, thanks very much, no thanks, please go home. Um, and Kant is actually um, very uh, critical of the uh, rights that Europeans were assuming they had in other parts of the world, 
colonial right, the rights they were arrogating to themselves in the colonialization in the 18th century. Um, so, uh, and so it's usually interpreted that he's simply discussing the rights of individuals to approach other nations and the obligation that other in nations have to respond nonviolently to that. Uh, in an address that she gave uh, at last year's big International Kant Congress, Honora O'Neill argued uh, that Kant actually uh, is insisting upon a general right of nations to approach each other with diplomatic missions and obligation of nations correspondingly to receive diplomatic missions. Um, now, uh, and in anything that she writes, Honora O'Neill, I'm, I'm sure many of you know some of her work, I guess I'm here I should say Baroness O'Neill, um, is, uh, is a very compelling writer, uh, but I have not been able to find any real textual evidence for this interpretation that she's given, but I think you could construct an argument that Kant himself doesn't make explicitly. And the argument would be essentially that um, the possibility of commerce between nations presupposes diplomatic relations between nations. Uh, you can't have commerce without um, dealing with matters like visas, uh, landing rights, docking rights, uh, easements to cross territory, and, and so on and so forth. And those, all those rights um, have to be negotiated at a, at, a, at a diplomatic level. So once you've set up diplomacy, of course, then there may be other subjects that come up, but the idea would be that um, the uh, right of, nation, of individuals of nations to approach individuals of other nations for commercial purposes could not actually exist on its own, but would require a structure of uh, diplomatic relationships, and nations would have to at least establish that minimum structure of diplomatic uh, relationships. Um, uh, and if you generated uh, a... Um, a more uh, a general obligation of nations to maintain diplomatic relations with each other from the alleged right of individuals of nations to approach each other for commercial purposes. That would be sort of analogous to the way, to the structure of Kant's uh, political theory in the first place, which is that um, states are necessary in order to um, make possible the conditions uh, for the existence of, of uh, acquired rights of property. So, reason we need, uh, especially, the, I mean, the reason we need basically executives and judiciaries is to make property claims determinate and secure. The reason we need legislatures is to make sure that the legislatures, uh, the executives and the judiciaries are working within a solid framework of law. Correspondingly, the reason we need diplomatic relations among nations is to make possible uh, individual and commercial relationships between nations. So that was the concluding argument, and since I've gone on for quite some time, I'll just stop there. Thank you very much for your attention.